We're going to turn in a moment to Psalm 107. If you, if you need a Bible, there's a whole table full of Bibles at the back there. You're welcome to go and pick one up. Um, we're going to be on page 852. If you don't own a Bible, you're also welcome to keep one of those for yourself. We'd love for you to have one. Read it. Wrestle with it. Try and understand what this faith is about if you haven't already done so. And uh, I encourage you to take one home and make it your own. I want to read to you from Psalm 107. And um, we're actually coming to the end of a little series we've been doing in this psalm. Um, and uh, I'll try and, as far as possible, just make it relevant to the fact that we're doing some baptisms today. But um, it's more of a coincidental thing um, that the themes do run together in certain regards. So I want to read to you, and I'm just going to do a kind of overview of the psalm until we get to the last section, and we'll read it in more detail. And um, I want you to just, uh, sort of for those of you who haven't been here, I just want to try and give you a quick summary of what the psalm is about so that we can understand how it comes to this kind of conclusion in the last verses. So we'll read together, and I'll just track with me through uh, what's going on here. And it begins like this. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he's redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east, from the west, from the north, and from the south. So the psalm is a call for people who've been rescued from all kinds of troubles in their life to come together and to worship God and give thanks to him for the great work he's done in their lives. And basically that's what Christians do every time we gather. It's kind of a rehearsal of those things that he's describing at the beginning. Then he begins to tell these four stories of different people who've been rescued or redeemed, what they experienced of God's power from different circumstances or situations. And they're all kind of metaphors for the kind of places in which you can find yourself in life. He says, first of all, some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. It's a picture of being in a kind of spiritual wilderness, hungry and thirsty, he says, in a kind of spiritual vacuum, without satisfaction, with a sense of desperation, with a sense of lack of direction, not knowing where to go. And he says they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress, and he led them by a straight way. So these people came to the city where they experienced Um, fulfillment, spiritual fulfillment. Then he says, some sat in darkness in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they'd rebelled against the words of God. And so he describes people who are kind of in a spiritual prison, which is the experience of many of us who have been caught up in cycles of behavior and habits that we make us feel bad. And the Bible describes this as sin, and particularly as a kind of sin that can become a habit or um, a, a kind of a bondage or a prison that you find yourself in in life. And uh, there's very few people who don't know what this feels like because all of us wrestle with things that we're less than proud of but find ourselves going back to. And he says they were in affliction. They were suffering. And then he said, they said, it says they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and delivered them from their distress. And he brought them into um, a place of freedom. He shattered the doors of bronze, it says. Then the third group, he says, they were fools through their sinful ways because of their iniquity, su- suffered affliction. Um, It talks about the stupidity of our behavior, how we become fools through sinful ways, and then our sin begins to destroy us. It begins to erode us from the inside out. And he talks about the kind of sickness that comes as a result of sin, how we become broken people because of the things we do to others and things done to us. And he says, and they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their their distress. Then we talked last week, verse 23, some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. So he's describing people who are getting on with life and at the very pinnacle of their success and their powers. And then he says, then God sent this storm that overwhelmed them. He began to, to, to rock 
their lives in ways that they never expected to the point where they feel utterly hopeless, utterly um, without help because they they were basically trying to go their own way without God and then God puts them in a situation in which they're utterly terrified. It says, and they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. Again and again, these people are in dire circumstances because basically they've ended up there because they've been walking away from God or they've never acknowledged God. They find themselves in the depths of distress and trouble. Then they cry to God because eventually they're broken by their situation, their suffering and their, and their panic often. And then God lifts them out. And that's the same pattern. A lot of Christians who, um, you know, particularly... For many of us, we can tell our stories of what we call our testimony, our story of what God has done in our lives. It would echo with, with any number of these themes. Any, any of these kind of pictures of what we were, what God did in us. And I've listened to a number of you give your, tell your stories or read them. And again and again, you see these patterns of the brokenness that comes, of crying out to God, and then of him bringing freedom and a sense of joy again to life when it was full of despair and darkness. And this is, this is why we're Christians. A lot of you maybe are not Christians. Maybe you've been brought here today to witness one of your friends getting baptized and you came out of politeness or curiosity or something like that. And maybe you're not quite sure what this whole thing is about. Well, basically, it's because we've experienced the power of God to change our lives. And uh, there's no, you know, sometimes it can be a little bit embarrassing to own up to the fact you're a Christian until you reflect on the great goodness of God in your life. And then you suddenly realize, why am I embarrassed? This is the best thing that's ever happened to me. And this is what the, the psalm is all about. <clears throat> then it comes to this conclusion. I want to read from verse 33. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. So there he says God can destroy situations. What was good, he can turn it to desperate uh, darkness. And then he tells it the other way around. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, And there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to dwell in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. And by his blessing, they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. Some people experience the destruction of all their prosperity and the favor they experience in life. Other people, the very opposite. God lifts them up, he says. It says, when they're diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. So even the most powerful are not outside of God's rule, decree, and justice. But, he says, but he raises up the needy out of affliction, makes their families like flocks, the upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. And then the final reflection. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Always think hard about the way God works. and Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. That's Psalm 107. <clears throat> Believing in God can be a massively inconvenient reality uh, in your life in so many ways. Because on the one hand, there are all the things which, um, if you want to follow Jesus seriously, there are all the things that you can't do. All the things you have to say no to. For some of you, that's the reason why you've never wanted to become a Christian in the first place. It's just sound, it, sound, it might sound to you like it's a miserable choice, because it's all this stuff that you're no longer allowed to do. And uh, some of you are, in, are Christians, but you're always wrestling with that reality. And it's, it's inconvenient. It's frustrating. And on the other hand, there's all the stuff which then you need to do if you're going to be a serious follower of Jesus. You need to sing with other Christians on a Sunday. <laughs> some of you are less than enthusiastic about this. Um, you need to 
be friends with other Christians, um, own up to being a Christian, all this stuff which actually in some ways makes your life less convenient and less easy. And uh, even, even stuff that maybe you find slightly cringy or embarrassing at times. Um, in many ways, there's aspects to the Christian life which are difficult. Jesus spelled this out in great detail. He was very clear about this. He says, don't even consider being one of my followers unless you've really considered how hard it is to, to follow me. Um, because basically what will happen is you'll be like one of those guys who starts building a building project and then runs out of money. And it's left half built. If you, if you sort of make a half-hearted commitment to me. So we recognize that the, the greatness of what it means to follow Jesus, it, it's, beyond, it's beyond many of us. And for that reason, some of you have never made the decision or you've made the decision and you've limped along or you've regretted it or something like that because of the, the, the constant war between what it means to follow Christ and, what, and the things that you're pulled to in, in life. And, uh, and so there's this, this, this tension, this inconvenience about it. So then you ask, well, why would anyone choose to follow Jesus in the first place? A couple of things you could say about that. Maybe for some, it's just that you become, you become intellectually convinced that it's true. And if you want to be an intellectually honest person, then you really have no choice left to you. If Jesus is who he said he is, if he really did die the death that, that the, the, the gospel tells us, us that he dies, and that he rose from the dead and confirmed that he is the son of God in power, if all those things happened and many people have become intellectually convinced that they did happen and that it's a true story, basically, rather than a myth, then to be honest with yourself, then you have to, you have to say, well, I have no choice left to me. I, I must follow him because he's the Lord of the universe. How can you deny him, right? Um, but very often, this isn't an adequate reason for the simple reason that we're not particularly rational creatures. It's not like everything we do in life is just obeying the laws of logic, is it? It's not like you make those connections. You say this, therefore this, and therefore I'll do this. Because oftentimes we do the things that we don't want to do. Or we find ourselves doing stupid things. You know, a lot of us wrestle with the problem of, you know, you know that if you eat too much food, it's going to put you in an early grave. But blueberry muffins are so appealing, aren't they? And they're designed to appeal to your senses. I heard once that, that donuts have the perfect combination of sweetness and fat to, to, to give you the, the maximum dopamine hit in your, in your brain. And so you do these things that are irrational. You go to Krispy Kreme and buy a dozen of the things and then eat them in one sitting. It's not a rational thing to do, is it? We do irrational things. Some of them very serious, massive consequences in our lives. You think, why does a guy who's got a happy family life, loves his wife, loves his kids, why does he go and, and wreck the whole thing by committing adultery with somebody who's just thrown, thrown herself at him or that he's pursued or whatever's happened out of the circumstances. Why does he do that? Why does he destroy his life? Because we're not entirely rational creatures, are we? We all, we all act from instincts and emotions and, and, and reasonings that we haven't really even fully understood inside ourselves. So when you ask the question, why does someone choose to follow Jesus? Yeah, there's an intellectual element to it. You must become convinced. Faith is not, it's not just uh, doing, doing something you know is wrong. It's quite the opposite. You have to believe it's true. But there's more to it than that, isn't there? There also has to be the second element, which is becoming emotionally convinced that it's the best choice for your life. Even if there's a tension, becoming the, 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 the weight of the balance pushes you in the direction where you say emotionally, I know in my heart that this is the right choice. So really what it comes to for anyone who ever decides to follow Jesus is that they come to the realization emotionally or deep in their gut 
that to follow God wholeheartedly will lead to greater joy, greater fulfillment, greater happiness over the long run than whatever fleeting pleasures that you, you try and fill your life with in, in, in the day-to-day. And you, make that, you come to that basic conviction deep inside, and it becomes the controlling reality of your heart. And that's when, that's when somebody decides to follow Jesus. I know, it, though, to get there, to get to that point where you tip, where you kind of submit, where you decide, I'm no longer going to go my own way, but I'm going to submit my life to God, requires a massive shift of heart, doesn't it? It requires, essentially, that you come to a place of, where you can surrender to God and submit. I grew up in, in a family of brothers. There were three of us. I had an older brother, myself, and a younger brother. And when you grow up with brothers, and there were like three years between each of us, there's a very definite dominance hierarchy that works among brothers in, in family life. We were actually witnessing some of that this morning when Seth was beating on his sister. But uh, we, um, some discipline had to be exacted there. But we, uh, you know, this is true of my, my life growing up. Basically, if you, if you annoyed the older brother, and it, worked, it trickled down, then you would be sat on and pain would be inflicted until you said you submitted. And you had, to, you had to say it. Because the saying of it symbolized the brokenness of spirit. <laughs> that you meant it, right? And the more you held out in defiance against the bigger, stronger brother, the more pain would endure. And uh, in some ways, this is exactly how the Bible shows our stupidity and our wrestling with God. Because God is clearly a lot stronger than us. There's actually a story in the Old Testament of Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord. And it's, very visible, it's a very visual uh, example of what happens to us all spiritually. He's fighting all night long, and then the angel just pops his hip out of, out of joint. Just like that. It's just like easy. And, it, and it's just, it, it was, it, forever he walked with a limp after that because he's broken by the experience. But it always reminded him, God is bigger than me, and I need to surrender to his purpose and will. And of course, that's what this whole psalm is about. It's one thing to be intellectually convinced that you think Christianity is true. It's quite another to come to the point where you're actually willing to surrender. And sometimes God has to break you in order to mend you, in order to bring you into a new life. Sometimes that is a protracted experience of wrestling with God and experiencing the agony of trying to run away from him, whether because you, you never belonged to him in the first place or because you've, you've known relationship with Jesus but you've been wandering and doing things that you you know are wrong, and he's wrestling with you, and he's afflicting you sometimes, as these experiences in the psalms hell. You've experienced being in the wilderness, you've experienced being in prison, you've experienced some kind of spiritual sickness, or, or this storm which frightens you to death. He's wrestling with you, because he wants you to come to the point where you can emotionally say, no, I know that life surrendered to Jesus is better. It's better. My reckoning is that whenever we gather, the reality is that not all of us are in that place. Maybe you're coming to church out of some sense of duty or some sense of guilt, maybe. But you know in your heart of hearts that you haven't surrendered. And that's what this psalm is about. So we come to the end of the psalm. We come to these last verses. He turns rivers into a desert, but he also turns the desert into pools of water. And this becomes the kind of interpretive key for what the whole thing is about. 
And what it is about is this, that God bring, can bring about reversals in our lives. That he can, he can be against you or he can be for you. And it's entirely to do with the posture of spirit and of heart that you adopt in relationship to him. And that's what I want us to think about. I want us to think about when God is against you, then when he's for you. And then lastly, God instead of you. But I want to think firstly about this. God against you. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground. It says a bit lower down, he pours contempt on princes, makes them wander in trackless wastes. Now, some of you have been shocked by the things that I've been sort of teaching out of this psalm in the last weeks or so, <clears throat> because you've, you've, come, you've come to understand God's will in, in your suffering, and that's a difficult thing to wrestle with. That either God has allowed you to experience suffering, or he himself is directly involved in it, which is what we were looking at last week, when he makes this storm happen on the great waters. And you think, well, how can God, God's all loving, it says, you know, how, 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 could he, how could he want me to experience anything like pain or suffering in life? It's a great question, isn't it, to wrestle with. And as I said last week, I don't think you can always provide a neat, cut and dried explanation to the things that you go through in life. And to oversimplify things is a mistake. The Bible teaches that very explicitly. We don't always know the mind of God. But I think we can take a stab at some of the things that we can say which are important. We can, first of all, have a, an eternal perspective on these matters. You know, Jesus says, <clears throat> he says, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, it's, it's very silly, isn't it, to, to whinge and cry and throw all our toys out the pram because of a small amount of suffering, relatively speaking, that we experience in life, when God's purpose is to wake us up to the fact that eternity without him is much, much worse. Having an eternal perspective on these matters helps a great deal. God might have a purpose in your suffering. He might have a purpose in your pain. It might be to wake you up. Another thing that's, that's incredibly helpful for Christians, and really uniquely one of the, the, the great unique aspects of the Christian faith when it comes to dealing with the whole issue of suffering in our lives, is that we have a gospel perspective. And what I mean by that is, we know, we know as, as, that we deserve much worse than what we get in life. Because our sin is so offensive against the holy God, it's only his goodness that we don't experience nothing but pain. And we know also that Christ himself experienced the full outpouring of the anger of the Father when he went to the cross for us. So when we begin to feel sorry for ourselves in suffering and wish that life had looked a bit different, we have this great understanding of the love of God in that he was willing to take the pain upon himself when Jesus went to the cross. Because God does not want to, you to experience the full depth and the full extent of what we deserve. He does not want that. And that's why he laid that on Jesus on the cross instead of us. The more important thing to wrestle with when you're in experiences of pain, where, where you feel like you're wrestling with God and, and you are in some kind of agony of soul, the more important thing to understand is the why by looking at your own heart. Why would God be against me? 
Why would he set himself in opposition to me? And I think that the answer that keeps coming up throughout this psalm is that when, when, mankind, when humans, when you and I set ourselves on a course of independence from God, the root of it is a kind of pride, isn't it? When you sin, there's pride. When you walk away from God, there's pride. You think you know better. When you're embarrassed and ashamed of Christ, there's pride. Pride is, is the root that keeps us from God and that causes us to walk away from him. And pride is the thing that God must break in us. So all through the Bible, what we see is this basic dynamic of what 1 Peter 5.5 5 puts it like this, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, favor to the humble. In other words, he sets himself against you when you're nurturing pride and he wants to lift you up when you express humility before him. I think that's the basic truth which captures the whole of what this psalm is about and of the ways that God works in our lives. He opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And there are so many stories in, in the Bible that just sort of open that up for us and show us that that's true. I mean, there's, there's too many to count, but I'll just give you a smattering of examples. In, in Genesis 11, in the very early pages of the Bible, we have the story of the Tower of Babel and how humans come together, it says, and they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. In other words, humankind rallies around a kind of, it's almost like the enlightenment project that we've seen over the last couple of centuries of human, the human will to, to, to progress through technology to express our dominion and our greatness without our need for God. Kind of shaking our fist at God. And God comes in and he confuses the languages and he smashes all their work. Because when man raises his fist in defiance against God, God opposes the proud. You see this kind of thing going on in the lives of individual stories all through the Bible. Just another kind of random example. The story of Absalom. Absalom is one of David's sons. And he has a, you know, the story is somewhat sordid in that David and, and, and all the children have kind of half-siblings. And Absalom's sister is raped by one of the half-brothers. And Absalom goes crazy, understandably, right? And uh, he gets angry and he, he exacts some kind of revenge. And he ends up in a kind of exile as a result. But Absalom nurses this pride in his heart, his anger with David, his father. And uh, he begins to wheedle his way back into not only into the family, but into the place of trying to take his father's place on the throne. And we have a little description of Absalom. It says that, um, that in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance. From, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish. So he's like the best looking guy in Israel. He's strong. He's, he's, he's got lots of hair, apparently, as well. It says when he cut the hair of his head, it says um, because he used to cut it once a year, it was so heavy, it says it weighed like two kilograms, the amount of hair that this guy grew. So he had a massive mane of hair. And uh, he must have been, you know, it's like the Chris Hemsworth of the Bible, you know, your Thor, and just this massively 
impressive figure. And you know how it is, often people who are impressive physically gain favor in life. And there he is, and he, he begins to put himself in, in the place of being, acting like the king. He stands at the gate, and he starts offering judgments to people in their civil, civil uh, issues and their, their, their suits against one another. And he, he kind of postures as being like this king. And, he, he, and then eventually, he says he is king. He just announces it and says, you know, come and, come and follow me. And of course, Absalom ends up in defeat. Uh, and actually, it's his hair that's his downfall. He's galloping away, and his hair gets caught in a tree, and he ends up hanging from the tree by his, his, his hair, which is a lesson to all of you, really, <laughs> on the dangers of long hair, especially you men. And... Um, but it's really about pride. The story's about pride. The story's about a man who in his spirit rises up and says, I deserve better. I deserve to be the ruler. And then God puts him in his place. Because God's choice was David, the humble king. There's another example of an emperor called Nebuchadnezzar. Who, uh, he's ruler of Babylon. And uh, like most emperors in ancient history, he thought of himself as like semi-divine, a kind of demigod. And he says things like this. He says, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And, you know, we don't get this kind of thing today, do we? Rulers who think of themselves as being very extraordinarily special. Um, but, yeah, back in the days we did. And um, Nebuchadnezzar, God, God makes him go crazy. He, he experiences a kind of a madness that breaks his spirit because God opposes the proud. There's a story in the New Testament of the Pharisees, these religious zealots. Jesus describes them in the most uncomplimentary terms all through the Gospels um, because of their pride, essentially. But he tells, he tells a kind of a story. It's fictional, but it's also based on reality. He says that two guys go up to the temple to pray. One's a Pharisee and the other's a tax collector. So he's, he's actually the scum of Israel society. He says, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, it says he's standing far off. He wouldn't lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, the tax collector went home righteous, the Pharisee did not. And all the way through the Bible, in many different shades and forms and expressions, you're seeing the same story play out. A person seeks glory, self-sufficiency, independence, self-rule, and essentially it's rooted in pride. It says God opposes the proud. He sets himself against such people. However it's expressed, he sets himself against you. If you're running from God... Your basic problem is pride, and the warning is God will set himself against you. He will oppose you. If you're determined to, to do what you know is disobedience against God, that's pride. And you've got to be warned, God will set himself against you. If you're unwilling to submit or surrender your life to God, be warned, that's a form of pride. God will set himself against you. And you may be going through this now, or it may be down the road, but the experiences of the psalm, you'll begin to understand it one day. You think, well, that makes sense, because now I see how my pride has led to my ruin in some form or other. He opposes the pride, proud. And the thing about the way the psalm ends, I think this is, this is why 
I understand it this way. Is that really he's, he's describing the dangers of, of success and of wealth and of power. Those who are in the wealthy, prosperous land, they experience God pulling them down. Because so often our wealth or power or success in life feeds our atheism or our functional atheism. The more we feel like we're getting on well in life, the less we feel our need for God. And we keep walking away from him. You think, I'm having fun, I'm doing well, things are going great for me. That's when God pulls you down because you didn't realize that all the good things you were enjoying in life were a gift from him in the first place. And none of it was something that you earned or that you created by your own strength or power in life. I think this is why in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus he, he announces these blessings and these woes, and he says, Woe, and he says, Woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, because you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And you think, what have these people done wrong? Okay, they're, they're a bit wealthier than others. They're well-fed, and they're, they're happy, they're laughing. And of course, it's not that those things are wrong in and of themselves, but the, the idea behind it, behind what Jesus taught consistently through the Gospels, is that when we enjoy the good things of life, so often we turn our backs on God because we begin to think we don't need him. Or we never run to him in the first place. And so we nurture pride in our spirits, and pride means that God will set himself against us. That's God against you. Here's the other half to what the, the psalmist is saying. So God can be for you as well. Because you see how in the end of the psalm, it doesn't just talk about turning rivers into deserts. He also talks about turning deserts into pools of water. This is this great reversal that I've been trying to describe for you. Some people are pulled down, others are lifted up. And you ask yourself the question, why does God bless? And how can you live under his favor? And the answer seems to me to be implicit in how he says it's the hungry that God blesses and the needy that he blesses. And Jesus agrees with this in those blessings and woes. You know, I just read to you the woes, but the blessings that came before it are like this. It says, blessed are you who are poor, for, your, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. You think, is it because in some way being in those situations is a good thing in and of itself? Is it good to be poor? Is it good to be hungry? Is it good to be weeping? Of course, the answer is no. Of course it isn't. But the reason why God is for such people is because of what those situations create in our spirit. They create a sense of dependence and of humility. A realization of our need for God that brings us to that brokenness that you kept seeing all the way through the psalm. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. You remember how that line just kept coming through again and again. The people who experience poverty in life, brokenness in life, weeping in life, are those who finally realize their need for God. I think that this basic dynamic has great explanatory power, by the way, for the trends that we're seeing on a global scale in terms of um, where you see Christianity flourishing and where you see it diminishing. As soon as you see nations prosper, very often Christianity goes on the wane. And that's what's been happening in the Western world, particularly in Britain, of course. That with prosperity comes a, a kind of defiance and a pride against God. And on the other hand, where you see great desperation because of physical need, but that creates spiritual humility, you see Christianity flourishing. 
This is what you're seeing in nations like Iran and, and in China and across many nations across the continent of Africa. And you see this, this great reversal is always taking place that where, where there is humility on account of our earthly circumstances, people suddenly realize that I need God. And where there's wealth, we become proud and we, we try and live a life that's happy without God because we think we don't need him. This is what we see in this psalm all through the Bible. Every point time God brings someone to a point of desperation, they have a choice, and so often that choice is to turn to God. And I think this explains Christ's own ministry. The thing that surprises so many of Jesus' contemporaries when he begins preaching and healing the sick and doing his work for the three years that he was ministering as a, as a traveling preacher, the thing that surprises people is that he, his whole conduct cuts across everyone's expectations in that he is not, he's not interested in the most serious religious people. But he is interested in the people whose lives experience brokenness. And so often you see him rushing to the points of need. You know, people who are recognized that their life is broken. You, he, you see even among his own, his own disciples, there you have a tax collector. A real scoundrel. And yet Jesus says, I want you to come out of that life and become my follower. You see among his followers, his closest friends, you see women who were in prostitution. And he said, he lifts them out. He kind of takes them by the hand and lifts them out of that life and that lifestyle. And so if you were to kind of just take a, a cross-section of Jesus' most serious and devoted followers, there's basically an inverse relationship to how successful their life is in earthly terms. That when they think they've got their act together, they have very little serious devotion to Jesus and he means very little to them. And when they realize that they are broken people, they have massive love and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see the same things happening today, of course. The exact same trends happen. It's interesting how, you know, when Paul is writing to one of the churches, there's a church in a city called Corinth. Corinth was a real cesspit of desire and unrestrained lust. It was, in many ways, a lot like London in that sense. And what does Paul say to them? He says, not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful. Not many were noble. But God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what's low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God has this relentless preference for the broken, for the needy, and for the poor. They're the people he chooses again and again. And you may have been wrestling. Why is it that I struggle to, to come to the point where I could commit to follow Jesus? Well, you're just, maybe just not broken enough yet. <laughs> just not experienced enough pain. And it, I want to make it clear, by the way, I don't think this is because God has just a pure preference for the underdog. You know, every sports film that's ever been made in the history of sports films always follows this basic same formula, doesn't it? There's an absolute no-hoper, either because they've got no money, because they're 
you know, something's wrong with them uh, or because they've got poor circumstances or no trainer or, you know, whatever reason it is. And then they lose a lot, right? That's the next bit, isn't it? And then something happens where there's like a switch that happens in their mentality, their attitude, their heart. You know, somebody comes into their life, a new coach, or they just, you know, they just summon up this, this animal power from inside, or there's a new team dynamic or something like that. And, and then they become this mighty victor against all odds. And really, all those films are doing, it's, you know, I, I, don't, I don't want you to come away with the impression that's what the Bible's saying. Because all they're doing is praising hu- the human spirit, human courage, human determination, human character, human teamwork. And saying, listen, if we just all get our acts together and pick ourselves up by our bootstraps, we're going to be mighty like these great heroes of, um, of, of the sporting world. And they're all just basically, it's just feeding our pride, isn't it? You know, if you try harder, you can fix yourself and you can make something of your life. It's interesting, that's not, how, that's not what this is about. This is not what the, go- the gospel tells us. It's much more about how you can't fix yourself. How you, have, you recognize you have no power. You recognize that even if you try really, 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 really hard, you can't improve yourself or your circumstances. And then God comes in and he lifts you. He does it. It's him. It's not you. And that is the pattern that we see all through the Bible. Who's the great forefather of all people who, who, um, who all Christians, and in fact, also Muslims and Jews, it happens to be, and it's Abraham. He's the great founder of these, these great religions, in, in a sense, in terms of you know, the family tree. And there he was, a childless man. And he's in his 70s or 80s, and God says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And then 20 years go past, and he's in his 90s. And this is in the age before Viagra, okay? And he's still got no kids. And he's like, God, seriously, I don't think I've got what it takes. And his wife finds it hilarious, because she's like, I'm well past menopause. This isn't going to happen. And God says, I'm going to do it through you. And they have a son. They have the son Isaac. And there's Moses, a little bit later. You know the story of the prince of Egypt. And how he's out in the wilderness, shepherding sheep for 40 years. He's an outcast, he's an exile. And he's got a speech impediment, maybe because of the frightening circumstances that he went through 40 years earlier. He's got a kind of a stutter or a stammer. And God says, hey you, I'm going to turn you into a preacher and you're going to go and deliver my people. And he's absolutely, he just can't believe it. He, he, he says, no, not, it can't be me, essentially. God says, no, it will be you. Much later, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is a man called Gideon. Of course, at the time, the people of Israel were suffering a great deal. You, know, you can liken their circumstances to a bit like what was going, was going on with the Rohingya Muslims um, today. Because they're being oppressed by, a, by a, neighbor's, a neighboring nation called the Midianites. The Midianites have an army of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, I think. And the Israelites are basically... They can barely scrape two spoons together to go into war. You know, they're really, they're really struggling. And uh, God finds a man called Gideon, and he's actually hiding when the angel comes to him. He's hiding because he's so cowardly. And he finds him and he says, um, you know, get up, mighty warrior, or something like that. And he says, who me? Because he's like, I am, I am the smallest person in my family. 
My family is the smallest in my clan. My clan is the smallest tribe. And my tribe is the smallest tribe in the whole of Israel. In other words, I am the very runt at the bottom of the pile. And God's like, well, that's the whole point. Because now I'm going to, say, now I'm going to bring about a great reversal. And it, no one will ever say it's because of you. It, couldn't, it was never going to be because of you. Because God's, that's God's preference. He wants to come towards those who see their absolute need, their absolute dependence, their humility. Even in the New Testament, you think about Jesus. You know, most guys in, who contemporaries of Jesus, when they were teachers, like Jesus was a rabbi. He was a teacher of the scriptures, okay? That's what he was. Some people think he probably wore a rabbi's gown. It's possible. I'm not quite sure. The Bible isn't explicit on that. But in, in, however you take it, Jesus was recognized to be a teacher. Now, most of his contemporaries who were teachers would go around uh, and they, they, they'd root around in the synagogue schools and they'd try and find the most gifted young boys who were very intellectually capable, who managed to memorize great chunks of the scriptures. And they'd say, come and follow me and come and be one of my disciples. And they'd raise up a school of disciples around them because they would start a new kind of movement of these followers. You know, so often, and if you have the most gifted people around you, it makes you look great as well, doesn't it? And Jesus is really weird in this sense that he doesn't do that. He goes, he walks around Israel finding guys who have barely got an education. And that's what, that's what surprises everyone. After, when the Jesus movement kicks off, all the men who were trained in the elite kind of universities, your kind of Oxbridge graduates who were kind of in the government, cannot believe that this movement is being led by these men. And they describe them in Acts 4 as uneducated common men. And you can kind of feel them spitting out the words as they say it. How can, like, there's almost this envy and this jealousy because they cannot understand how these men can know God's ways better than they do and have more spiritual power and more influence in the city than they do. And it's because time and time again, God wants to lift up the humble, doesn't he? He wants to elevate the humble. So that at the end of the day, none of us can boast. We can never say it was because we were so great that God chose us or used us or because we were able to pick ourselves up. What does this mean for you, friends? At this point, you should be asking a question you know, is God against me or is he for me? That's the most important question that the psalm presses on you. I want to bring you to a last idea, which is God instead of you. Here's the surprising thing about Christianity. You know, as I've been saying, God works in the opposite way to our expectations. We've seen how he reverses the natural hierarchies, and that's what he takes pleasure in doing. He pulls down the wealthy, the powerful, and the successful because of the pride that those things create. And he lifts up the poor, the weak, and the broken because of humility, basically. Not because it's good to be poor or to be weak, to be broken, but because of the humility those things create in our spirits. That's what God's interested in. And here's the surprising thing about Christianity. This works in spiritual realities as much as anything, in, re- in religious realities. He reverses religious hierarchies. There's one thing that people could never quite grasp about the Christian faith, which sets it apart from every other faith. It's this. The most dangerous form of pride is religious pride. Either because you, you don't recognize your guilt before God, or don't feel that conviction of sin, or because you think and you set yourself determined for yourself to improve yourself before God. And that's basically the way, the, the basic dynamic of how all other religions work, apart from Christianity. They lay out before you 
a number of steps, a program of self-improvement, basically. Not necessarily in that language, but that's basically what it is. They say, follow these steps and change your life. And then, hopefully, you will attain this level of spiritual greatness and maturity. And then God will accept you. That's the fundamental direction of the teaching of every other faith on the face of the planet, as far as I can tell. And here's how the gospel comes to us, the message of Christianity. It comes to us in the exact opposite way. It says you need to give up. You need to absolutely stop this attempt to get God's favor and to change your life, to become the kind of person that you think will be acceptable to God. And you need to recognize that Jesus has done everything necessary in your place that you can experience forgiveness from all the offense and the sins that you committed against God. And you can experience love and acceptance because of what Jesus did for you. Christianity presents Christ to you as your great substitute. Says he lived the life that you were never capable of living. He lived a perfect life. Our lives are full of brokenness and sin. And then he, the one who did not deserve it, was brutally murdered on the cross, but it was part of the plan of God. And Jesus surrendered himself to that plan. He was brutally murdered on the cross so that he could accept the full weight of the sin of the things that you and I have done wrong. And the only thing you must do in order to receive the full benefit of this is trust him. That's what we mean by place your faith in him. Which is to say, you give up this attempt to work your way towards God and you recognize that Jesus did it all for you. And you see, that's the basic dynamic of pride and humility which I've been trying to describe for you. Pride would be a a pattern of self-improvement, wouldn't it? And then the the feeling good about yourself as you improve yourself, which is the great irony of religion, isn't it? That the better you become, the more proud you get, which is basically the fundamental sin. And the humility which the gospel brings is this, that you accept that Christ did everything for you. I read it earlier. I just want to remind you of that verse in 1 Corinthians 1. Where Paul says, Not many of you are wise, powerful, noble. But God chose what is foolish to shame the wise, what's weak to shame the strong. And he says, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And friend, I want to just explain then, this is why we do baptism. Because baptism is not only a humiliating thing in and of itself, (laughs) but it's also a basic announcement to the world my only hope is the salvation that Jesus offers so I'm being baptized into his name so that my whole life of sin will be crucified with Christ will be put on the cross with him and the life of righteousness that he lived would be given to me and so I die when I go into the pool to all my prideful efforts and I am raised in in righteousness that Christ gives to me an acceptance and a love that Christ gives me as a gift, as a free gift. This is why we baptize. Let me pray.
Lord Jesus, I want to thank you and praise you that even though you were at the Father's right hand, the great ruler over all things, you humbled yourself when you took on flesh and became a man, and you humbled yourself further when you became the servant of men and died on the cross in our place. And we look at you and we see, Lord, how you were put in the place that we should have been put, the place of utter humiliation, the place of being pulled down and crushed and broken. You were put there instead of us. And Father, I thank you that as you raised up your son and gave him the name that's above every name, you've called us to surrender to him. And I pray, Lord, that every person here who um, has wrestled with this and has questioned, Lord, whether they should follow you or not, would see, would see with great clarity what it means to, to give up the fight, to give up pride and to follow Jesus as a, a step of great humility, to say, Lord Jesus, you owe, I owe you everything. Bring us, Lord, to a place of great spiritual clarity of mind where we see what the gospel is and what it means and how you want us to empty ourselves so that we can be filled with Christ. Thank you for his greatness for us. Thank you that he is matchless. We love you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.